Phil Hack currently leads the desktop team at GitHub. In his past career at Microsoft, he helped ship the ASP.NET MVC framework, as well as NuGet, an open-source package manager. Phil Hack, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Let's start with an overview and a history of the Microsoft development stack. What is .NET? .NET is a uh, runtime and framework and, and base class library that uh, Microsoft provides. If you're not familiar with it, probably the easiest analogy is to look at Java. Um, so it's like Microsoft's managed runtime with garbage collection, uh, managed languages, and um, frameworks on top of that, which include things like ASP.NET for building web applications, WPF for building native applications, and... Uh, so on. What is the common language infrastructure? There's the CLI and there's the CLR. Let me start with the CLR. The common, common language runtime is uh, like the, the managed runtime that all .NET uh, code runs on, right? And so it provides a set of services and uh, there's an intermediate language. So the common language infrastructure is um, it's like the, the specification for running on .NET, and I think it applies to, like, it, they actually got it, like, ISO certified or equipment. I can't remember which one it is, uh, maybe both. And it's, uh, it's the specification that allows you to develop languages uh, for that run into, on the framework. So, for example, um, you know, Microsoft provides C-sharp and VB.NET and F-sharp, but um, others have provided languages like, uh, know, COBOL.net or uh, Fortran.net. And so you can pretty much convert any language to run on the runtime, but you just have to follow this specification. And, uh, I, you know, like I always get a little hazy, like it, it might even go down to like what the format of the binaries have to be. You know, like there's like the header formats, just say when you compile this down to an assembly, which is sort of the unit of deployment and runtime, uh, you know, where information structures are located on that. So how can we compare the CLR or the common language runtime to listeners who for listeners who may be more familiar with the JVM? How how can you compare C sharp and Java uh, along those lines? The JVM and the CLR I think are somewhat analogous, right? Like the JVM is what's um, executing the code. Um, it's been a long time since I've done Java development. If I understand, like the JVM, it provides the JIT, the jitter, right? Uh, so, like micro, uh, IL, which is the intermediate language, is like the equivalent to Java bytecode. Uh, there's a, a JIT, you know, compiler that will compile that to um, native code, and then you have, uh, you know, I, I imagine Java has some sort of specification as well for com for languages that run on the JVM. So, like, there's a uh, Scala. Java and so on. I don't know what that specification is called, but uh, and, and like what the type system, for example, is, uh, if there's a common type system. Um, but with uh, .NET, you know, the CLI defines the common type system, what the metadata is, and uh, you know how programs are loaded into memory, all that stuff. Could you give me some context on the background of .NET 
as a proprietary framework versus its more uh, open source present day manifestation? Yeah. So when .NET first came out um, a very long time ago, uh, it was you know came out as a proprietary framework. Uh, most of the you know platform built on top of it, uh, like like most frameworks, you know, it's the, the or most runtimes, it's the frameworks that are on top of it that provide the most value. And all of that was uh, closed source, proprietary Microsoft, in true you know old school Microsoft fashion. Um, but uh, you know, eight years ago or so, like there are a lot of different movements within Microsoft to make things open source. Um, for example, ASP.NET MVC, which I worked on, was one of the first uh, framework libraries that, that went open source. There were other products like Wix and Meth that, you know, started go- that went down that route as well. And it was, I think, a recognition of a lot of people at the sort of the ground level that you know, open source is really important to developers, right? Like they want, um, uh, people want to be able to like, not only step through the code, they need to see the code, but they also want to know that there's some sort of guarantee that if you don't support this anymore, I can take the code and I can uh, run with it. And, uh, you know, like, Microsoft really wasn't getting much value, quite honestly, from keeping the code closed. So they started, uh, you know, eventually, like, you know, people started seeing the light and it started becoming more open source. So now what you see is... Um, almost an open source by default policy over at Microsoft when it comes to developer frameworks. Uh, the new ASP.NET DNX is uh, the next generation of ASP.NET, for example, is uh, not only developed as open source, but it's developed you know, on GitHub and accepts contributions. And so this was a long journey to get from closed source you know, to, to open source by license, but not in, rea- you know, not in community all the way to where we are today, where things are open source, accepting contributions, and done on GitHub. Uh, in fact, the next generation of the .NET framework, you know, the, what we call the core framework, I think, what they're calling it, is uh, also developed in the open uh, with contributions. Um, the existing, you know, kind of the existing .NET framework, the one that shifts in Windows, is still not open source, but I think, you know, the... It's probably one of those cases where the effort to make that open source would just be too great. And it's almost better to say, well, let's just, you know, take parts of it that we know are clean and easy to port, port it to this new, you know, uh, core runtime. And we'll make that part open source. And then, you know, like, so in the next 10 years, eventually the entire framework will be open source, is my guess. What can developers leverage once .NET as .NET becomes more open sourced, uh, so do you mean developers who are not already doing .NET? I mean, develop. So, what is the advantage to a developer who, like, what is the gripe that a developer has when .NET is closed source that is satisfied when .NET becomes open sourced? Uh well, I mean, there's a lot uh, there. I think so. Well, one thing is just being able to compile the code uh, and like tweak the code. So like, there's one thing to say, well, you know, I want to be able to step through the code and see the code, but you can solve that by just making the code available. Um, there's another aspect of saying, well, you know, I really disagree with this design choice, and I want to be able to change it for myself, and uh, but I want everything else provided for me. And so like having the 
you know, the next level of open source where like people can actually swap out components is important. As an example of this, um, Visual Studio, which is like their flagship IDE, kind of an Eclipse uh, parallel, uh, uses libgit2 sharp and libgit2 sharp, which is a library for auto- automating Git. Uh, and a someone just wrote a blog post about how they were able to recompile libgit2 sharp and add SSH support to it and have it work within the context of Visual Studio. And so that's something that you could never do before, right? I mean, unless you're willing to binary patch it and potentially break everything. So support for open source goes beyond just making the license and code available. It's, it's things like that where I can, as a developer, I have control over my environment and I can swap things out. So I think that's a big part of it. But there's also this big part of it where people really like these frameworks, they really like this code, and they want to participate more with the teams that are building it uh, to do it. And so um, another great example is if you look at the C-sharp 6 development, like the Roslyn, Roslyn, which is the managed compiler for the next generation of C-sharp languages, they're doing the language design in GitHub issues out in the open, getting people... Uh, contributing to the language design. And if you go there and check out the discussions, they're fascinating. They're really interesting because if you're not a language designer by trade, there's a lot, you start to learn like all the different little edge cases and and trade-offs that language designers have to think about that you normally don't think about as a developer. And so, and from the folks from the C-sharp team have told me that they found that the level of discourse uh, since they've moved that discussion to GitHub has really actually increased like the, the quality of the discourse uh, over the language design and the, um, the benefit that they get from having more community involvement in the language design has been a real bonus to them. So it doesn't just benefit the users and the developers, but also benefits those creating these technologies. This is QCon week on Software Engineering Daily. And at QCon, you're going to be hosting a track called the amazing potential of .NET open source. Tell me about this potential and what you're going to be covering in that track. Yeah, uh, so what I wanted to look at was .NET open source technologies and um, topics that would have a broad appeal. I know that the .NET track is relatively new to QCon, and so there will be a lot of developers there who have never been exposed to .NET or don't do .NET development. And I wanted to uh, present talks that show .NET in a, in a new light where it's like, oh, this might either be interesting, like I want to investigate this, or it might be interesting, I want to pull these technologies into the stuff I'm working on. Um, a really good example of this is uh, reactive extensions. So reactive extensions is a technology developed at Microsoft originally um, by a gentleman named Eric Meyer, who um, is now independent. Um, but it was one of these things where it was a, it was a very useful technology for managing concurrency in a way that you know, resolves a lot of the pain points of uh, race conditions, this and that, um, in a declarative manner that you could reason about. And so it turned out that it was so good that other communities start to take notice, right? Like there's always been this you know, idea that, oh, .NET only borrows things you know, from Java, borrows things from everywhere else. But this was like one of the first, like to me, like concrete cases, probably not the first, but one of the 
concrete cases where you could see this technology from the .NET open source community influencing other technologies. So now there's an Rx Java, there's an Rx Ruby, and then there's even uh, you know UI frameworks, the model view view model style UI frameworks built on top of reactive extensions like Rx UI, Reactive Cocoa, and so on. So it, and that kind of going back to your earlier question, that's another um, big benefit of this going open source is that we start to participate in an overall broader open source community. In the past, I, I've always felt the .NET community feels kind of insular, right? Like we only talk to .NET developers. I only go to .NET meetups. I only go to .NET conferences. And one of the things I really hope for is to integrate .NET into the larger overall software development community. I feel like the .NET community has a lot to learn from the Java community, the Node community, the Ruby community. And likewise, I think the .NET community has a lot to offer these other communities. And to me, that's sort of the amazing potential there of us, all these communities working together to elevate software development as a whole and not getting too factional. What are the ways that you can reduce that factionality and make people more willing to collaborate despite the fact that they may have certain spheres or silos that they are naturally gravitated towards? Well, I think a lot of those steps have already happened. For example, being closed source was a big barrier to that, right? Like when you're dealing with these other communities that are open source uh, they don't really, you know, want to have to ask you to look at your code so that they can share ideas, right? But if it's open source, you can easily get to those ideas and not worry about licensing implications and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, being on GitHub, I think, you know, I, I may be biased, but I was saying this before I joined GitHub. <laughs> but being on GitHub, I think, is an important aspect. Um, the open source, .NET open source used to primarily be in this uh, thing called CodePlex, but it was only .NET open source. And I feel like being on GitHub exposes that open source code to a lot, a much broader and diverse audience of developers. Um, but likewise, I think efforts like QCon are a good example of these interdisciplinary conferences where people are exposed to topics in, uh, on platforms and languages that they are not normally familiar with are a big deal. I'm a big fan of conference like this and like NDC I think is a good example of that. This is a Norwegian developers conference, um, Oradev. Uh, I'm starting to become a real big fan of these interdisciplinary cross-platform conferences because I think, you know, we, I think that really does help elevate the industry as a whole. Like when you talk to people who've only gone to one type of conferences, you start to find that they will give these talks where they rediscover things that someone in another community have been doing for years, as if this is a brand new idea. And I'm sure like many of us are guilty of doing this, but you know, the more we share this stuff, the you know, more we can actually really look for novel and new ideas that haven't already been discovered by another community. You were at Microsoft from 2007 to 2011. What was going on in Microsoft around that time? Uh, well, when I joined, I joined the ASP.NET MVC team, which was a web framework that was meant to be a complement to their existing ASP.NET framework. Now, and that web, the existing framework was built on this idea of web controls that you know, kind of shuttle data back and forth. It was, it was uh, 
a really interesting approach to web development. But a lot of people were looking for something that was a little more lightweight in Rails, like uh, Rails as in Ruby on Rails. And so that's what NDC was. And at that time, what I was noticing was that more and more people were within Microsoft were really starting to open up to the idea of making things open source, in part because the community was starting to tell them. Not necessarily the enterprise community, but more of the uh, progressive, what I would call the progressive .NET developer community uh, were really uh, pushing for this. There was this movement called the Alt.NET movement around that time, and it was a group of people who were really trying to what I'd say, open developers' eyes to different ways of working that you don't have to grab everything from, from Microsoft, that you, you know, independent developers are creating really cool things. Other platforms are creating cool things. We should take those ideas for ourselves and so on. And so I think that movement really influenced Microsoft a lot too. Now, I can only speak to like sort of the developer tool space in that. Like I don't know what was going on so much with like Office or Windows. Uh, Microsoft's a huge company. It was like 90,000 back then. Um, but during that time, like uh, me and my colleagues were pushing you know, for us to make more and more of the developer platform open source. And so you know, one of the things that I also worked on was called NuGet, which is a package manager that we both made command line and integrated into Visual Studio and created a whole gallery for it. And one of the things that had the effect of was making it really easy for .NET developers to start pulling libraries, independent libraries, into their projects. Uh, again, at that time, you know, like if you get, went to a standard enterprise shop, like they would kind of always wait for Microsoft to produce just about everything or buy things from a, you know, a handful of component vendors out there. But now we're kind of bringing to them, uh, via Visual Studio, a way to get access to the, the world of .NET developers and all the independent and free and open source libraries that they were creating. And I think that really had a, a, a big benefit to that, so much so that, net, you know, fast forward to now. And uh, it was interesting because at the time, I felt like teams within Microsoft didn't really get NuGet, other teams at least, until like they saw that it became really popular among developers. And once it became popular, now you see like a lot of teams within Microsoft adopting it. Um, the, you know, the primary unit of deployment for the next generation of ASP.NET is NuGet packages and, uh, and so on. So users or listeners would maybe be more familiar with package managers such as NPM or apt-get if they're not familiar with the Microsoft stack, which is just to say that these package managers are extremely important to development. They help a lot. They're very easy to leverage. So... That brings us to an interesting technical discussion because you worked on NuGet, and when I think about developing a package manager, that sounds like an incredibly difficult, incredibly complex, and interesting process. And you were you were a program manager, I think, a senior program manager on this project. So I'd love to get some uh, discussion of what that process was like. How did you help manage the NuGet project? Sure, sure. So, I mean, a little background on that. Like, you know, at that time, Ruby Gems was, you know, out. NPM, uh, I think, was early days or just prior to NPM. I can't remember, like, the timeline there. Um, Maven is, you know, in the Java community. Like, the idea of package management was not new. 
And it, in some ways, it was surprising that it hadn't happened already in the .NET world. Um, but it may well be, you know, like unlike the Java community and the NP, you know Node community and the Ruby community, those communities don't have sort of this one juggernaut of a company that sort of directs things, right? But the, the .NET you know community has Microsoft, which sort of is the for better or for worse the foster the uh, what's the term? You know, the, back in Renaissance Italy, you have your patron. It's the in a way, it's the patron of the .NET community, right? So, and I think that kind of held the open source .NET community back for a while until Microsoft started to really be on board with it and try to take its hands off a little bit. But in some ways, like when we started working on NuGet, we felt like nothing, there were package managers in the .NET space, but nothing seemed to be uh, taking off at the time. So we wanted to really like, we figured if we could build something that would go, be in the product, that it could be the impetus for launching, you know, a big community of package authors. And so, um, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at RubyGems and looking at Maven and, uh, you know, trying to look at the best ideas from those things, but also, you know, look at the way that .NET develop, you know, the majority of .NET developers were used to working. And we wanted something that would, excuse me, hopefully be useful to the progressive .NET employees who are fine with command line and, you know, fine with uh, automation and, and exposed to these other technologies, but also be easy to use to, you know, the enterprise .NET developer who just lives and breathes inside of Visual Studio. And so that, to me, was an important design goal. I, and I, the other design goal was, at the time, we wanted, we didn't want people to have to change the way that they did development, uh, meaning that, like, if you installed a package, it was basically a way of automating the, the steps you would normally take to get a library into your project um, at that time. And it, it, which meant that, like, you know, we had to make some design trade-offs that maybe weren't the, if you were designing a package manager from scratch, you might not do that now because now people have more sophisticated uh, practices for that. As one example, we would, when we would install packages, we would actually add them uh, into your source control. And the thinking was, well, if you were doing this with, you know, some DLL that you, you know, binary that you downloaded from the net, you probably want to check it in with your source code so that those things version in lockstep. Uh, down the road, that ended up being, you know, in the short term, that was a great decision, in my opinion, but... Uh, down the road, it became a very bad opinion as everybody started moving to Git because Git doesn't ma manage binaries very well. And so people's repositories started to grow. So we actually reversed that decision and implemented um, something called Package Restore, which is kind of like what I think you know, Gems does you know, with Bundle and that sort of thing, which is to say that you don't commit your binaries to your packages to source control that we have a manifest and then you know when you build the solution it will pull down the packages that it needs and then we'll rely on third parties to provide the intermediary services for example you know maybe you do still kind of want local ones you don't want to depend on the service being available to build your solution uh, the NuGet team decided not to attack that themselves but let the, the community or the vendors build that sort of thing in it almost sounds like you have kind of a last mover advantage in terms of creating NuGet, because you were able to learn from all of the package managers of the past when you were building it. Um, so I find that interesting. 
I'd also love to hear more about your development of ASP.NET MVC, which you were also a program manager for, and perhaps if there were any uh, learnings that you took from one project into the other or overlaps between the two. I haven't done any shows on project management, so uh, that that would be a good topic to uh, give some bandwidth to. Yeah, I mean, um, so I start start working at NBC first. I joined; it was already sort of underway, but I um, but we hadn't yet shipped the first version of it, and you know, our approach to it was really trying to both again look. You know, like you said, the last mover advantage is it's it's a good advantage when you have like the resources of a large company behind you. Um, uh, but the tricky part there was. You know, we wanted it to appeal to the .NET audience, but we also wanted to appeal to audiences beyond that. And that, at that time, was a very hard sell because Microsoft, uh, you know, as you know, had a very bad reputation among people outside of the Microsoft community. I think in the past few years, they've done a really good job of addressing that. I think Satya is a great CEO, and, and that helps a lot. And Azure is actually being seen as a, a decent, you know, product as opposed to, like, being rejected outright because it comes from Microsoft. Um, but, you know, so most of our approach was to do preview, you know, get a lot of feedback, uh, meet with community people, and issue previews as much as we could. We would throw out previews to uh, the general public, let them provide feedback on it, and use that to guide decisions. And, uh, you know, at the same time, like one of the things that we didn't do as well as I would have liked, that a lot of other frameworks benefit from is we were building a framework as opposed to building applications and then sort of extracting the framework out of it. And that's one of the areas that I feel that is a weakness of Microsoft's approach to frameworks is that a lot of times they're starting framework first and I think they would benefit and they have really smart developers. So, you know, it's not that the frameworks will come out bad. But I think there would be a lot of benefit to them to actually have teams building a real application that they really deploy and, and getting sort of firsthand experience in all the difficulties and challenges that it entails. I think it would really help shape uh, an even better design for the frameworks. And that's something that we did not do. How does a company like Microsoft get empathy for the solo developer or the small team uh, development cadre, because you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, if if they were going for uh, framework first instead of you know maybe building an application and, and extrapolating a framework from there, um, I don't know. They may not have the like I said, the empathy for the scrappy development team, which is how a lot of applications start these days. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the tough part, right? Like, they have a lot of means of gathering communication, uh, sort of gathering input. Uh, these days, they're using GitHub, so, like, you know, anyone can come in and log issues who are running into problems. And so I think that's a really good way to for them to be connecting with them. Back then, it was a little harder. Like, we would tell people to use this thing, service called Connect. And if you ask any .NET developers about Connect, you'll hear them chuckle, like, oh, that thing's horrible. Uh, it's, you know, a black hole. Uh, we actually looked at every single connect issue, but it you know it was feel, by the time it went through that system, it was a little bit late. It didn't feel firsthand. So we would, I personally would try to build like these little toy apps, you know, to get as much empathy as I could. But there's 
it, there's a far cry between a toy app and something that you actually deploy and run your business on. And so, uh, you know, one thing that did help was that there were teams within Microsoft that were building app, applications using ASP.NBC. Um, parts of Bing are built with it. Um, parts of uh, Xbox's websites and um, properties are built with it. So there was, we're starting to get firsthand feedback from, you know, internal teams building it. Um, but you're right. I think it's a big challenge. I think being now that they're on GitHub, they'll, they'll get that. And hopefully, you know, like the teams are starting to you know, build and deploy apps themselves. I read that in 2014, when .NET Core decided to go open source, there were certain internal engineering processes that needed to be changed in order to enable open feedback and collaboration within the community. Maybe this is the migration to GitHub that you're referring to. And I know you weren't around in 2014, but maybe you can remember from 2011 or 2010, what were the things that might have impeded the type of open source uh, development that Microsoft is now able to take advantage of? Oh, yeah. I mean, so there were probably... So Microsoft has had multiple internal source control systems. Uh, when I first joined, there was something called, uh, uh, what was it called? It's like some sort of, uh, can't, I have to try to remember what things are public and not. But anyway, uh, they had their own source control that was a derivative of some other one that they had bought. And then they also started, they had started building team system. So, that, you know, a lot of teams were on that. A lot of teams were on the old one. So there, you know, there's a big migration to move to GitHub, and that took a lot of effort because they had a lot of build tools and internal tools that were very specific to Microsoft, um, like the code signing tools. The uh, uh, what else do they have? Uh, you know how you enlisted in repositories and, and such. And so I know I think some of those teams for a short while we were doing something where they had the code on GitHub, but they were actually still developing in their old systems, and then sort of doing drops on GitHub. And then it took a while for them to get to the point where they were actively doing development in the GitHub repository. And I believe that's where most of these teams are today. They're actively developing in there. So they've had to spend time integrating whatever internal tools they have with GitHub. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's one of the reasons why that kind of change, you know, didn't happen overnight because it, there was a lot invested in their existing internal tools. Tell me about your experience moving from Microsoft to GitHub. Uh, it, uh, I don't know, that's a, about a 90 to 100,000 person company to, a, at the time, a 50 person company. It was a big change. I mean, I've been at small companies before, so it wasn't like it was new to me, but it was certainly very, very different. I remember probably one of the biggest changes that I noticed was uh, when we released the first product I worked on at GitHub, which was GitHub for Windows uh, 1.0. And I had a natural tendency to be like, okay, I need to like brace myself for all these negative, like attacking, angry comments. You know, in addition to all the people who really like it and praise it, I was like, okay, just going to be a whole ton of angry comments. And it didn't happen. Like the, the nearly all the feedback I saw was really glowing, positive. We love GitHub and all that. And I was like, wow, it's, really interesting to work at a company that's just so universally loved by developers and its customers. Like I thought, and, and I thought I was coming from a product at Microsoft that was 
very much beloved by many of his customers. But even so, the fact that it was Microsoft, you always knew that there would be a lot of vitriol and anger no matter what you did. And so that was a nice change. I mean, hopefully things have improved for Microsoft products and employees in the meantime to some degree. But I think, you know, perhaps as a company that side, it's very hard to have people continue to stay positive. And even now, you know, with GitHub growing, like, you know, I, I'm starting to see more negative and uh, feedback across the spectrum because, you know, we're a bigger company. We're, we were 50, we, around 50 when I joined, and now we're a little over 300. So you, you can't keep that up forever. <laughs> Although you got to imagine that the early exchanges around Git were filled with far more vitriol than you can imagine, seeing as it came from Linus Torvalds. Oh, yeah. I mean... I'm talking about a client app versus yeah. Like, I, I know I know you're ta- talking about something totally different, but uh, just like the roots in terms of the roots of Git. Oh yeah, I mean I imagine it's interesting because maybe we just avoided the the Git uh, core community. Even we're completely indifferent to what we're doing, right? Because I I could imagine that a lot of them would look at that and be like, "Oh, you're you're dumbing it down," or this is you know not right, but. We, we actually tried very hard to stay true to some of the philosophy of Git. Like, we did little things like, uh, you know, because Git is very geared towards the shell, like, it's generally considered good form to keep your commit, uh, first-line commit messages under a certain number of characters, um, uh, so that, like, if you forward the, you know, the patch email, it spits in the subject line and yada yada and doesn't get broken. And so we would actually put little... Uh, Little things where, you know, we try to encourage users, like we would highlight when you're over that number of characters. We would uh, try to format the description body so that it was, you know, 73 characters wide or 50. I think we actually made it 53 or 55 so that if you have the little, you know, in the email clients when they quote something, they always put the little brackets on the left. So, like, you know, we wanted everything to line up and fit in the terminal. So we tried to stay true to a lot of, like, little things that most users who don't use command line Git would not care about. Um, in part because if you, you're using, what we wanted is if you're using our clients, we didn't want anyone to know by the form of your commit that you're using this native client. Like, they, you know, like, oh, if we, you know, this commit obviously came from some new because it's not formatted correctly or something like that. We didn't want that. <laughs> Every piece of software has warts, but Git is one of the rare pieces of software where I, I can't remember a time where I've been using Git and I've been like, oh, this is so annoying. I hate how this aspect of it works. So what are the downsides of Git? What are the criticisms of the software that you hear? Wow, really? <laughs> no, honestly. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just like, I've dodged bullets, but... In general, like when I screw when something is screwed up on Git for me, I'm like, oh well, this was my fault. <laughs> I, I think that to me is like the criticism of Git is that the how easy it is to get to a position where it's your fault, <laughs> you know, is like you know as as we say, Git is like a gun and it's very easy to shoot your foot, but it's uh, I think like the main criticism, but it's also e- very easy to mend your foot. That's true. That's true. But it's. From coming from a Windows background, especially for a lot of Windows developers used to integration in their IDEs and or you know GUI applications for source control, Git feels like a foreign la- like learning a foreign language and a foreign language where the rules are 
you know, completely different from what you're used to. And so I, I think a lot of the criticisms I've seen coming from that community is just sort of the usability of it. Like, um, I think it, there is a bit of a learning curve there. I think when you understand what it is under the hood, like this, like why people keep talking about the directed acyclic graph nature of Git, right? Like, and what that really means, it starts to make sense. Like, it's a concept you have to wrap your head around. Um, but, you know, we're also talking about a group of people who are used to connected um, source controls, like subversion and uh, source con- source safe even and team system. And the distributed nature of things is a, a big conceptual leap in its own right. And then the fact that, like, yeah, Git doesn't really guide you in its way. And so that's one of the things, like, you know, with our native clients, we wanted to help guide people to uh, a certain flow of working so that you don't have to know, you can learn Git and learn all these extra things, but we wanted to make the mainline flow really easy, which is, you know, create a branch, do your work in there, create a bunch of commits, submit a pull request, and then, you know, start a new branch, merge it, start a new branch. And I think like, you know, it'd be nice to look at ways to maybe even bring some of that to the command line. I've tried to do it with aliases. I wrote a blog post about uh, 13 aliases for uh, improving the GitHub flow, where like using these aliases kind of automate certain tasks that you might do if you're doing the flow. Like a common one is, okay, I've finished this branch, submitted the pull request, and now I want to switch back to the main branch, get all the updates, and then delete any branches that have been merged into master on the server. So I wrote one alias that does all of that for you. And I I think like with some of these aliases, like we can get to the point where maybe we can provide a nice streamlined approach to Git. Like if you're a Git beginner, here's the few commands you need to know. As you get more intermediate, here's some commands to add. And as you get advanced, here's even more commands to add. I think that would really help sort of get people um, to not be so afraid of Git who are new to it. Yeah, I'm going to put that blog post in the show notes. That sounds really fascinating. What are some of the underappreciated built-in features of Git? Uh, oh, man. I... Because I was listening to a .NET Rocks podcast that had you on, and you mentioned some Git command that I had never heard of. I think it was like bisect or something. I was just going to say, Git bisect, yes. So Git bisect is basically a way of doing a binary search through your history for finding, let's say, a bug, right? Uh, so you're running your product, and you're like, oh, this I clicked this button, and it's supposed to close this window, but the window stays there. Okay, well, you know, I'm looking through the code, and I don't see an obvious reason for that. So let's find out what commit introduced that. So traditionally, you know, what, what would you do to solve that, right? You might try to check out different commits and run the code and see if it runs it. But Git bisect uh, kind of has an autom- uh, a structured approach to that. So what you can do is you can try to, you know, you can say, well, I know it was working in the last release. So let's run Git bisect and we'll tell it the last known good commit, which was the last release. And we'll tell it the current commit is bad. And then what Git Bisex does is it's this interactive process where it will, you know, go to the middle commit and check it out. And then you can tell it 
you run your test and you can tell it was this good or was this bad. And then if you say bad or good, it will then, you know, like that helps it choose which is the next commit to test. And eventually, you know, through and it, you know, goes to the midpoint, right? So eventually you the binary search will get you to the the one commit that introduced this bug. Uh, that and then you can look at that commit in your history and be like, okay, now I, I you know I have a lot less to review to figure out what was wrong with that bug. The other cool thing about Git Bisect though is you can actually pass it a shell script. So instead of um, manually testing every single commit, which is kind of time consuming, you could have it run the shell script against the code. Maybe it runs your unit test, and you could say, okay, uh, tell me, you know, run Git Bisect, and then tell me which commit makes this return zero instead of one. And so then you just like let it go, go get your coffee, come back a little later, and it will you know spit out, oh, this commit is when this script failed or whatever. And so it's a really powerful way for finding what commit introduced a bug. I did an interview with Eli Collins, who is in charge of a lot of technology at Cloudera, and one of the things he said was that Cloudera is the, I think, the biggest contributor to Hadoop. Uh, and I guess that kind of makes sense because Cloudera depends on Hadoop's, you know, growing infrastructure, uh, fixing bugs and whatnot. So I'm curious if, well, first of all, how active is the updates to Git as an application? And assuming it is somewhat active, uh, how much of that uh, active development is done by GitHub? Uh, so Git is very active. Um, I, I I don't know any numbers, but I know it's constantly being worked on. There's a core team that uh, continually develop it. GitHub has two full time employees on its staff that are core that contribute directly to Git. Uh, they're core contributors. In fact, I think the second. The number two in terms of number of commits contributor to Git is a Microsoft, uh, sorry, GitHub employee. So we're really active. I mean, it, it makes sense to us because we've benefited so much from Git, so we want to contribute back. But also, it's so important to what we do. Uh, we also contribute a lot to libgit2 and libgit2sharp, which are the libraries built uh, on top of Git. But unfortunately, Git wasn't written in a way that makes it very useful as a library, like, you know, there'll be code paths where it'll just call exit. Yeah. And so you don't want that in a library that you're going to embed in your application. So libgit2 and libgit2sharp uh, provide a, a library form of Git. So all the functionality of Git, but in a nice uh, embeddable library form, linkable library form. What are you working on at GitHub? So I manage the desktop team, and so we build GitHub Desktop, which was formerly GitHub for Mac, GitHub for Windows. Now it's uh, uh, under a single brand, and there's still two applications, one for Mac, one for Windows, but the, the user experience is unified so that it makes it easier for a person to be using it on one platform to use it on the other. And, and GitHub Desktop is a, a GUI client to Git that's really focused on the GitHub workflow, so you can create commits, view diffs, and uh, create pull requests uh, directly from the application. And we have a little some niceties, like you know, when you're creating a commit message, you can do um, the at sign and see a list of users in your org. You can do uh, colon and get emojis, because we all know emojis is the most important feature. 
And then also my team builds GitHub, ex the GitHub extension for Visual Studio. So we're working with Microsoft to add GitHub functionality inside of Visual Studio and make it really easy for people to acquire that functionality. How does GitHub Desktop, how does that compare to, from a development standpoint, your work on uh, NuGet and ASP.NET MVC at Microsoft? Well, it's similar in some ways in that, like, once again, my target audience is developers, right? I want to make developers successful at the, whatever they're doing. So before, uh, you know, ASP.NET is about building a web application. So, like, it was more of the framework that you would write, you know, the code that you would write. I want to help you write the code. NuGet was about getting libraries into your project. So you're building this website, like what library should you be using? And then, uh, you know, desktop is about, okay, you're writing all this code. Where are you putting the code? Uh, you know, like, let me help you get that code on the GitHub. And let me help you follow the GitHub flow for doing that, which is a nice way of collaborating with others. And then GitHub, you know, provides all the issue tracking and all that stuff. So I feel like I'm, I've kind of been, you know, working across the spectrum of, making, hopefully, making developers better at their jobs and more productive and more collaborative with each other. You mentioned you thought, you think Satya Nadella is a great CEO. What do you like about Satya's changes that he's made to Microsoft? Uh, I think one of the things is, and it, some of this stuff actually started before him, like even with Balmer, but there is a sense of, Sometimes when someone's so tied to a previous regime, like that they can't, be, they might have the same ideas, but they can't be as effective at executing those ideas. And I think Satya not only has the right ideas, but he's also can be very effective. He's a kind of a new a breath of fresh air and people don't associate him with the, the negatives of Microsoft's past. And that I think unlocks him to accomplish a lot of these things. But I also think that, you know, like, I'm a big fan of Scott Guthrie, and I think uh, Satya pulling Scott up and making you know him a the president of the server and cloud and Azure was a really solid move. And Scott really, really gets developers. Like uh, Satya is, I think, former developer. Scott's a former developer, and I think that really helps them uh, provide a very developer centric viewpoint of how they build these products. And I think that's really important. Like I. I think it's always been in you know Microsoft's DNA to focus on developers and, and figure that everything else kind of works out from that. When developers on their platform are happy, they're going to build really great things and they're going to make their overall customer base happy. And I think you know Guthrie gets that a lot. And Satya has also been very open to open source. Like they're both friendly towards open source and trying to do it right. Um, they don't see it as something to be squashed or commandeered, but you know like to respect it in its own right. And I think that's really important. Do you think people at Microsoft are using Linux? Uh, yeah, I imagine they are because um, in a couple ways. One is that Azure runs Linux instances. So you, you know, I imagine if you're going to host Linux instances, you better be using Linux. And also the, uh, the ASP.NET team are committed to being cross-platform. So they want to make sure that thing... Uh, if, in fact, if you go to the, some of the GitHub repos, you can actually see um, their little build statuses where they run their builds on multiple different platforms. And I remember one time, it was, it was really funny because uh, someone posted a screenshot of, like, I, I forget which, whether it was the .NET Core or ASP.NET Core, but um, the build status on Windows was red, but it was green on Linux and Mac and everything else. So, like, you know, they're really committed to... Uh, 
focusing being cross-platform for the developer platform. I've worked at eBay and Amazon, and you've worked at Microsoft. Uh, maybe this isn't a question you want to answer, but does it ever surprise you how many people these giant companies are able to recruit and retain? <laughs> Because it seems like like the value proposition, like when, when whenever I'm I, whenever I've been at these one of these giant companies, I'm just like the value proposition just doesn't make sense for me to be here. Uh, that's that's how it often feels for me. So maybe maybe that's like me in particular, but it's like it's it's one of these things where I like at these places I always feel like there's this big group psychosis. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so Microsoft. One of the benefits of working at a company like Microsoft, and I imagine the same sort of like Google, is that they're able, they have the resources to hire a very high caliber of developer and people like working with other really talented people more so than, you know, more like the money matters less at that scale than like who you get to work with. Um, you know, if you go to Microsoft, you might get to work with like a leading expert in particular technology, like, you know, Anders Heilsberg, who uh, designed the C-sharp language. That's pretty awesome. And TypeScript. And TypeScript, yeah, exactly. And you go to Amazon, you can work with, you know, Vernal uh, Wogels or uh, like someone who created AWS, right? Like they, they have the scale to have leading experts, and some that is an appeal to people that might go beyond the money. Also, I, I think Microsoft pays really well, um, especially if you're really good and you know you make it to the higher levels. Uh, there's certainly more upside to doing a smaller startup or more potential upside, but also like it's, there's more risks there. And so I think, you know, these larger companies appeal to a sort of person who, who um, wants to work and have a huge, huge impact, right? Like, you know, you're working at Microsoft, your product by default is going to reach a million people at minimum, right? Or something like that. Uh, and you're going to get paid well enough to live comfortably and you're going to have a lot of stability in your job. Um, but your individual impact on things might feel, depending on what you're working on, might feel a little less, right? Your potential of a major upside might be a little less, but everything's less risky. Versus, you know, going to like a really small startup, you know, like uh, you might get more potential upside and options in, in terms of percentage of value as the worth of the company. Your salary might, well, if you're in a Bay Area, your salary might even be really, really good. Um, but sometimes, like you know, like you realize, depending on the startup, you might not have the ability to have as big an impact in terms of the, the customer base, right? Like, um, like you might not reach that many people, or you might not get to work with uh, a broad spectrum of the world leaders. Like, you might have someone on the team who's a world leader in one thing, but like if you want to work on a spectrum of things, the other oh, sorry, one more thought. The other thing about a big company like that is also there's like this ability to move around, right? Like if you get bored and you're one thing, the company might have like, you know, if you're bored at Microsoft and you're like, oh, you know, I really want to learn Xbox, you know, <laughs> so you go to join the Xbox team and it's like, wow, it's like joining another company, but, you know, continuing your uh, vesting there. So I don't know. It's, I, I, I'm not too surprised that they're able to um, at this point. Do, do you think that there is some element of, uh, people really wanting a place to fit in where the culture will maybe uh, iron out some of the more independent uh, aspects of a human, and then in exchange, there is you know this Kool Aid narrative. Uh, you know, some people talk about the Kool Aid at, at these types of companies, um, and I don't know you know wh how much 
you agree with that. I, I, I've, I've encountered Kool-Aid in varying degrees. Uh, sometimes it's overstated. Sometimes people want to drink it. But I don't know. I think it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that occurs at these giant tech companies. Yeah, I, I think Kool-Aid is really bad for big companies, right? Like, I like to think of culture sort of like there's like the necessary culture or more like values, and then there's the culture, right? And, and by that, I mean, like, you know, I think there are necessary values, like, you know, we value integrity and, and uh, transparency and uh, not being, you know, awful to each other and stuff, right? Then there's, like, the culture where it's like, oh, we all like to drink or we all like to watch this particular movie. And, and, and then, you know, there's, that secondary culture is not essential to a really strong business. It's just something that happened to emerge from people, but then they start to push people towards that. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of that secondary one, right? Like, I think it's fine for people to have that, but where it starts to cause people to have groupthink and it causes people to, especially like where it's like, yeah, my company can do no wrong or my company's products can do no wrong. I think that's really harmful. And I, I you know, like this is probably an overgeneralization, but I think I saw that a lot more in early, you know, early GitHub, I'm sorry, Microsoft, when when Microsoft was at the height of its power, it was like it could do no wrong. And I think that when it started to go on the decline is because it missed so many things because of its own arrogance, right? And I think what you really want is a company where everybody can be happy and proud to be working at the company, but also um, is encouraged to have a very critical eye at the way they work and what they do and, uh, and their own, how their own products are doing. What you never want to be as a leader of a company is in a situation where all your people are telling you what they think you want to hear um, because they're afraid to tell you the truth, right? That like your product is failing, your product sucks, um, where you're making decisions based on that wrong data, where your own biases are um, affecting you. So I, I like to think that GitHub has a pretty good culture of being very self-critical, uh, perhaps even more critical than like people outside of the company. Although, you know, I think we even went through our period where, you know, there were many who kind of looked at GitHub as, a, as exceptional and not realizing that, you know, in the intervening time, you know, many of our competitors are building things that are actually really cool, but we would scoff at that. So we're trying to, you know, instill this sense of like, we need to be really, we need to be our own harshest critics. We need to not let arrogance blind us to, um, you know, like making bad decisions. So I'd like to close off with a question about QCon. Um, so this is going to be my first QCon conference that I've ever been to, and I've actually never been to a developer conference at all. Do you have any suggestions for how I should go about it, what talks I should go see, how I should socialize with people? So I've never been to QCon either, but I have been to a lot of developer conferences. Um, there's probably some good posts who will tell you tips even better than I can, but my, I've always found that um, when you get to a certain point in your career, a lot of times the hallway conversations are mo more beneficial than even some of the sessions. Although with a conference like QCon, I think my, my suggestion would be look for conferences that, or sorry, look for sessions that are kind of outside of your normal day-to-day -day you know, uh, workspace. I think you'll get a lot more out of it because it will expose you to ideas that you're not necessarily already 
like you want to get out of the echo chamber. And I think a conference like UConn, some of those sessions offer a lot of that. So, you know, I'll personally, I, you know, on the day I, I'm hosting the track, I'll obviously have to be there. But on the other days, I'll probably try to check out uh, some of the other ones. And then, um, you know, another thing is like, without fail, I try to, I often like to go up and introduce myself to the speaker and, and, you know, think of a thoughtful question, but if not, just introduce and say, Hey, I appreciate the talk. And then listen to what the other people are asking. Uh, it's a good way to, um, get a little extra out of it, learn what, um, what struggles people have with the, the content and then, yeah, take part in all the, you know, extracurricular events, right? Like, and don't be shy, right? Like introduce yourself to people. You have a nice hook. Yeah. Oh, I run this podcast, you know, like, <laughs> right. Like just find a hook, you know, that, that makes it less awkward to introduce yourself to uh, a stranger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to go to a lot of magic tournaments and I live for the hallway conversation. So but that's a good point. Um, well, Phil Hack, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great chatting with you, and I look forward to seeing you at the conference. Oh, yeah, me too. Take care, man. Okay, take it easy. <laughs>